ChatGPT's 38-year-old CEO testified to Congress Tuesday, urging them to regulate his own company and their industry. We'll take stock of what he said and what Congress is likely to do. Then, special counsel John Durham unveiled his much-anticipated report on Monday, investigating the conduct of the FBI concerning allegations of Donald Trump's alleged connections with Russia. We'll unpack what he had to say, as well as the battle to spin the conclusions. And finally, does more school funding equal better results. A new study sheds light on this age-old ed policy debate at a time when federal dollars are drying up. We'll discuss all that and more. This is The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. Hello, everybody. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Over here, I was reading the New Yorker this morning. Saw mm. your name in there. The article about the club for the canceled. What's going on here? Yes, How come I I'm not invited the to the pages? Club? I don't think you've been canceled yet. Do you want me to take you down with me? I mean, <laughs> but you haven't been either, have you? Um, I think I'm probably not the most loved person at my former campus. Would be uh, one way to put it for sure. But well, catch our audience up. What what, what is yeah, this, this so club? I, I have this a friend of mine named Pamela Paraski. She's a psychologist. She worked on the coddling of the American mind with Greg and John. And she's during like the lockdown. I met her on Clubhouse back when that was still a thing. And then she started like making this group that she called the Thought Criminals, which I always wince at the name. I don't love the name, but um, it's like a bunch of really random eclectic like writers and journalists and professors and stuff who all feel as though they they would like a forum to have different kinds of conversations that they don't think they can have uh, kind of just out and about in New York at, at in polite company at cocktail parties. So a uh, New Yorker and the New Yorker is on to you. Yeah, they they came to they came to profile the group and I made my little uh, New Yorker debut. I think it was like a relatively um positive piece. I was nervous about what the spin would be. I think she did a good job of just kind of objectively surveying the room of admittedly, like we're a very bizarre ragtag group of of folks, but you know, it was fun. It's interesting. We'll link to it in the show notes. It's quite a read. I do agree. It was pretty measured piece. I think <laughs> there's a lot of writers that uh, she did a good job. Yeah. And on. Pamela, I think was was careful and cautious in letting someone in on something that, you know, obviously the whole point of us being there is a degree of privacy and a lot of people declined to be in the article, but I was like, screw it at this point. <laughs> I'm already, I'm already out as a weirdo. So I, I thought you came across just fine. Uh, and you know, I, everybody should just read the piece. It's not even that long. It's not even normal New Yorker length. It so, was so long. I don't know what you're talking was about. It I don't, who, oh, like who sure. reads these like 80,000 word, like, well, there's sometimes, well, a whole I other discussion even. someday, like the New Yorker, 10 years ago, The New Yorker was incredible. I think New York Magazine has taken its title right now. It's mm. my that's my favorite of all those, but okay. So I'm too Speaking used to my like 600 word op-eds in the post, just shooting those out rapid fire. Speaking of thought criminals and, and other types of criminals, you know, breaking news this morning, uh, Epstein, you know, this Epstein case, Deutsche Bank has agreed to pay $75 million to settle a proposed class action lawsuit, charging it with facilitating Jeffrey Epstein's sex trafficking ring. Uh, this may be the largest judgment ever uh, for a sex trafficking ring before. And there's actually another lawsuit pending against J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, but the case against Deutsche Bank was brought by a woman who's anonymously listed as Jay Doe, who is an alleged victim of Epstein. And she alleges that Deutsche Bank did business with Epstein for five years while knowing he was using the money in his bank accounts to further his sex trafficking activity. So this just keeps going, the story, Ricky, this Epstein story. Every day seems to be another headline. Yeah, and a growing list of people who are somehow connected to him. It feels as though it's everyone. I think Noam Chomsky and the Bard, Unbelievable. Bard College president are on the list. Although I do, I I think we should be cautious not to jump to always the worst conclusions on, like, I think there are certainly uh, degrees of of involvement that different people had. So, sure. you know, there's, there are some people that may have just known him and others, but like the, the fact that Noam Chomsky had funds moving around through, um, through Epstein is a little concerning to say the least. Yeah. It's yeah. I'm not saying Noam Chomsky is a pedophile. It's just like weird that all these people from Bill Clinton to Donald Trump to presidents of colleges, Steven Pinker to all the Bill Gates are all hanging around with this guy who, 
you know, seems like a rather unremarkable person other than the fact that he was a rather aggressive criminal um, doing some of the most heinous things you could ever imagine. Like he seemed like a, besides that, like a run of the mill billionaire, but seemed to have been the most networked person in American history. Um, yeah. You know, like the, it, it gives, it's like the little crumb of credence to these crazy conspiracy theories of like, there's a, a high powered sex ring pedophile thing happening in the back room. And then it's like, Oh, <laughs> Interesting. There kind of was one, but it was happening on an island and everybody was there, apparently. It's just kind Every of Every good conspiracy theory has a kernel of truth to it. Otherwise it's a you know Exactly. Like, so I don't I don't know. I don't know what there's to we don't do a lot on the Epstein stuff just because honestly, like it's I don't just think a we really have a lot to offer. It's beyond. a really tragic story. And yeah. I often think that people take these anecdotes and try to paint them for more they are. I think that, you know, my take on the Chomsky thing is it's just how bizarre that this guy knew all these people like just totally bizarre and gives you a window into just a super elite society and how it operates. So I'm not saying that <laughs> this grand conspiracy is just weird that they all know each other. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, you know, big announcement. We got Sunday, Ricky, we got a, a special episode coming up. We do. Andrew Yang's interview with us was yesterday. We're airing it on Sunday. It's a fun conversation. I enjoyed it. Yeah. So listen in on Sunday. It'll be a special episode. And then we're trying to go back to our regularly scheduled content where we were doing either regressives episodes or longer interviews over the weekend that kind of depart from the sort of segment by se segment policy stories that we tend to do on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But <laughs> we do have some big news to talk about today. Sam Altman is the 38-year-old CEO of uh, ChatGPT testified before Congress all about regulation of AI and his own company. And I think he surprised a lot of people. He actually met privately with 60 House lawmakers from both parties on mm -hmm. Monday. And uh, he's done sit-downs at the White House, including with Kamala Harris. Okay, and who just, like, who thought that, you know, AI is really like the issue right now. Let's put Kamala Harris on it, of all people. Let's make let's make her be the, the I think they're administration's like she's, person. I think they're saying she's younger than Biden. I bet she asked for this. I, this is a couple of things going on. One is she's younger than Biden. So they're saying, hey, like this is a person who probably is more tech savvy. Uh, I think number two is she probably asked for it because it's a very sexy portfolio where she can one day be able to run and say, hey, like I've, I've become an expert on this. This is me flashing my sort of young people bona fides. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but all that aside, Ricky, I don't what feel I think, more comfortable with her at the helm, but I'll just. Well, she obviously that. she solved the border, so she's now on exactly. the, to AI. But OK, so the big headline here is that Altman went to Congress and actually called for Congress to regulate AI. Let's go to this clip. We think that regulatory intervention by governments will be critical to mitigate the risks of increasingly powerful models. For example, the U.S. government might consider a combination of licensing and testing requirements for development and release of AI models above a threshold of capabilities. There are several other areas I mentioned in my written testimony where I believe that companies like ours can partner with governments, including ensuring that the most powerful AI models adhere to a set of safety requirements, facilitating processes to develop and update safety measures, and examining opportunities for global coordination. And as you mentioned, uh, I think it's important that companies have their own responsibility here, no matter what Congress does. This is a remarkable time to be working on artificial intelligence. But as this technology advances, we understand that people are anxious about how it could change the way we live. We are too. All right, so Ricky, so this is you know, Sam Altman is calling for regulation. He called for a couple of different things. One, uh, one big headline, I think, coming out of this is that he called for a new agency to regulate AI. Do you support that? Do you think it's worth And it actually seems like there's bipartisan support for this agency. I think being proactive on this is smart. I don't, I think being careful that we don't stifle it and actually listening to the industry as obviously he's very willing to put himself out there as a, a face that I think is a little more comforting than like the Zuckerberg sort of prototype of someone who seems completely disconnected from the human implications of their technology. Like I think listening to, to people who are on the inside and creating an, a, an agency responsibly. I mean, I don't really see an alternative besides just letting this run awry. And even, even the executives themselves are asking for it. I mean, it's, I'm, I am always kind of suspicious of too much 
government and company kind of coziness and especially in a burgeoning industry. But, you know, I mean, he he comes off well here. He says we're anxious about this, too, which I think is kind of unprecedented that I think like, you know, compared to tech CEOs who kind of want to say like, there's nothing wrong here and there's nothing to be concerned about. But he, I think for me, the most salient quote was when he said that this is a tool and not a creature and essentially something that we can and do have control over and we should maintain. What was stark is that you often watch these hearings and there's usually a, a major divide between these two political parties. But what was pretty obvious here is that both parties seem in favor of regulation here. And I can't mm-hmm. remember the last time I've seen something like this. And just to illustrate this, here's Lindsey Graham sparring with uh, an executive from IBM who seemed rather skeptical of creating a new agency. And here's what Graham had to say. Do you agree with that, Ms. Montgomery? I would have some nuances. I think we need to build on what we have in place already today. We don't have an agency Regulators. Um, oh, wait a minute. Nope, nope, nope. We don't have an agency that regulates the technology. So should um, we have one? But a lot of the issues, I, I don't think so. A lot of the okay, issues. Okay, wait, wait a minute. So IBM says we don't need an agency. Uh, interesting. Should we have a license required for these tools? So, so what we believe is that we need to regulate. That's a simple question. Should you get a license to produce one of these tools? I, I think it comes back to some of them potentially yes. So what I said at the onset is that we need to um, clearly define that, risks. Do, do you claim Section 230 applies in this area at all? We're not a platform company, and we've, again, long advocated for a reasonable okay. care standard in Section 230. I, I just don't understand how you could say that you don't need an agency to deal with the most transformative technology maybe ever? Well, I, I think we have existing... Is this a transformative technology that yes, can disrupt absolutely. life as we know it, good and bad? I think it's a transformative technology, certainly. And the conversations that we're having here today have been really bringing to light the fact that you know, this the, is, the this, domains and the, the issues... This one with you has been very enlightening to me. So, uh, you know, as somebody who spent some time with members of Congress, um, people testifying before Congress before, this is like exactly how you don't do it. Sam Altman clearly is very practiced. He knows what he's doing. Like, you always want to show up and say, hey, I support regulation, whether you do or you don't. In the back yeah. rooms is where they often do that. Zuckerberg is the king of this. In the back rooms, you could say whatever you say or hire whatever lobbies you want to hire. But you got to get up there and be like, yeah, I'm very concerned. I think we should do this. And then mm-hmm. let Congress figure out the details. And it's not like, you know, this this unheard of executive at IBM calling for, a, a, you know, calling for the agency or not is going to tip the scales one way or another. Uh, but I do think what it does illustrate, though, is Lindsey Graham, who's a Republican, and, you know, we'll, we'll look at Holly, we'll look at Blumenthal. You've got Republicans and Democrats in the Senate, both pretty forcefully calling for regulation here. And I think the yeah. question is, will they be able to get to it fast enough? My only kind of cynical stance here on someone like Sam Altman, who's obviously OpenAI is just shot to the top of the the pile here, 100 million users in just two months since GPT came out. And I do think that there is a vested interest when you are the big guy on the block to say, oh, regulate us, make the, make a license system, make it harder to break into the system without yes. having proof of concept behind you, because then you're stifling competition or you're, you're stifling startups that might be more um, exploratory or, or more groundbreaking. And you end up kind of baking in this regulation that that kind of kills competition, which I do think we should be concerned about, um, both domestically and internationally, as my cat is just causing chaos behind me. I'm sorry <laughs> that this is a consistent theme of this podcast. Yeah, I totally agree, Ricky. This is you know what they call regulatory capture, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you want, you almost want heavy regulation to to push away any potential competitors. And I'm not sure that's what Sam Altman is really like concerned about here, but we should be concerned about that, especially yeah. when you have people like uh, John Kennedy, the senator from Louisiana, saying the following. He says, quote, this is your chance, folks. Tell us how to get this right. And he added, talk in plain English and tell us what rules to implement. <laughs> so he's asking the industry itself what rules to implement. This is, you know, this continue, This it, it's not novel to say that we need members of Congress who are technologically literate, which is something we talked about with uh, Yang um, in that episode that'll air on Sunday. But it would be great if we had people 
who were competent enough to craft rules without begging the very industries that they're regulating to tell them how to regulate. Uh, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, one of the moments that at least demonstrated some level of te- technological proficiency, I don't want to overstate it, was when Senator Blumenthal of Connecticut opened his remarks by not reading his remarks, but playing the following, uh, which was AI-generated content. Um, he basically generated his own opening remarks in his testimony through AI. Let's listen to this. Too often, we have seen what happens when technology outpaces regulation. The unbridled exploitation of personal data, the proliferation of disinformation, and the deepening of societal inequalities. We have seen how algorithmic biases can perpetuate discrimination and prejudice and how the lack of transparency can undermine public trust. This is not the future we want. If you were listening from home, you might have thought that voice was mine and the words from me. But in fact, that voice was not mine. The words were not mine. And the audio was an AI voice cloning software trained on my floor speeches The remarks were written by ChatGPT when it was asked how I would open this hearing. Yeah, Ricky, and what he's saying is like, this is not, it's not scary that Blumenthal would crib his own remarks in front of the Senate, but what he was saying was there are so many other potential use cases here where you could imagine Mm -hmm. um, somebody mimicking somebody else's remarks. And he used the example of the Ukraine war, that somebody could create audio claiming that a high-level politician in the United States like himself would be supporting um, Russia, uh, Ukraine's capitulation to Russia or something. And then that, that could ricochet through you know, Ukraine's media or something and kill morale mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, Josh Hawley also had uh, things to say about how this could potentially, and you know, so Blumenthal, Democrat, Josh Hawley, who's a Republican, went back and forth with Sam Altman about how this could actually influence elections. Uh, let's go to this clip. Should we be concerned about models that can, large language models that can predict survey opinion and then can help organizations, entities fine-tune strategies to elicit behaviors from voters? Should we be worried about this for our elections? Yeah. Uh, thank you, Senator Hawley, for the question. It's, it's one of my areas of greatest concern, the, 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 the more general ability of these models to manipulate, to persuade, uh, to provide sort of one-on-one, uh, you know, interactive disinformation. I think that's like a broader version of what you're talking about. But given that we're going to face an election next year and these models are getting better, uh, I think this is a significant area of concern. I think there's a lot, there's a lot of policies that companies can voluntarily adopt, and I'm happy to talk about what we do there. Um, I do think some regulation would be quite wise on this topic. Uh, someone mentioned earlier, it's something we really agree with. People need to know if they're talking to an AI, if, if content that they're looking at might be generated or might not. I think it's a, a great thing to do, is to make that clear. Um, I think we also will need rules, guidelines uh, about what what's expected in terms of disclosure uh, from a company providing a model uh, that could have th- these sorts of uh, abilities that you talk about. So I'm nervous about it. So I think this, these are all really interesting questions. And like a while ago, I floated the idea of potentially like baking into social media platforms, AI detection that might be able to flag it at the bottom. Like we, like anytime the word COVID comes up for a while, there were like CDC information, things that would come up underneath. Um, but I, I mean, I, I think that it's all kind of conversation headed in the right direction. But when I think about like election interference, when I think about um, like disinformation campaigns and stuff, I'm less thinking about open AI or, um, domestic tech companies doing that and more about the international ramifications. So I think a lot of this is going to also involve fortifying like our international security on this front and not just regulating these companies themselves necessarily. I'm not, I'm not convinced that Sam Altman is going to be the source of, um, this sort of like election changing or, or disinformation campaign sort of stuff that they're discussing. It did come up, interestingly, this sense of the 
the the global question and how powerless the U.S. is to stop anybody in other countries from using this technology. And there's always we we did ask Yang about this too. Like the question, the worry that some people have is that if we regulate here, we may slow down innovation, which means that countries like China could leapfrog us. Mm-hmm. I think there are probably ways you could do sensible regulation that doesn't. Uh, prevent the U.S. from doing the kinds of innovation we need, or you could have carve-outs for the government, for example, which I know some people would have some major concerns about. But one thing Altman said, which was interesting, which is that most of the chips that power this type of technology come from one single U.S. company, NVIDIA Corporation. And he suggested that the U.S., through uh, its relationship with NVIDIA, could somehow control the computing power around this, which is a provocative statement that didn't get a lot of attention. You know, because I'm, I, I'm not sure how I feel about it. I honestly have to need to spend more time thinking about it. But essentially what he's saying is if you control the means of production, um, you can control uh, you know, AI around the world. And if he's right about that, that is going to be an interesting area um, for this regulation. And some of it may happen behind the scenes. Like a lot of these relationships between these major tech companies and the U.S. government happen in classified uh, briefings and you know mm-hmm. sort of secret deals that happen behind the scenes. So we may never fully know about what the U.S. government and Nvidia agree to on this front. Yeah, I mean, it would. It's hard for me to imagine, though, given how how quickly things are developing on the AI front, that there isn't some world where a parallel infrastructure couldn't be constructed by by China, by Russia, by whoever. Yeah. Yeah, I think what, what, one thing we talked about that gives me a little bit of hope is that the very censorious nature of some of those countries is going to slow down AI, in part because like the AI mm-hmm. gets better the more you interact with it, the more you innovate on top of it. And you know, as chaotic and crazy as our country is, one thing that you definitely see is that the power of capitalism is as strong here as anywhere. And you've got all these plugins, all these new tools being built on top yeah. of this technology for better or worse. And so if I'm, I'm betting, man, I'm going to bet that the United States is going to continue to be pretty strong here until and unless Congress does something. And on that front, it's a good place to end is... Congress said they're going to continue to have more hearings. They're going to have one in July. I think the next hearing is going to be in July that looks at copyrights and patents. And I think this is funny to me. They're like, this is an urgent issue. This is, you know, this is potentially going to be like devastating for our elections and our democracy and industry and jobs. And then they're like, yeah, we'll see you again in July. And we're going to talk about copyright and patents. <laughs> and I'm like, you guys don't understand. Two months is a hundred years in the life yeah. of this technology. They should be standing. They honestly, I know that this is impractical, but there were days when this was possible. They should pass a legislation immediately setting up an agency and give it pretty broad latitude with certain, you know, certain benchmarks or certain check like checkpoints that they have to come back to Congress and get further authorization. But they need to be moving fast on this kind of stuff to stand up the regulatory capacity. Because if it takes six to nine months, which is probably bullish at this point to pass any legislation, then you're gonna have to stand up an agency. We're talking about this stuff affecting the next election. It won't even be up and powerful enough in time to do anything about the next election. Well, how do you foresee, I mean, between now and the next election, what I don't I don't think that I foresee a world in which like the the deep fakes and stuff are so convincing that they spoof people, do you? I think the pace of this innovation, it wouldn't surprise me if they were good enough by then. But I think mm. part of it is it's it's unclear whether the deep fakes is the only problem here. Looking back, the Durham probe largely involves stuff that happened around the 2016 election. And, you know, like we've talked about this before, the Senate Intelligence Committee found that there was an aggressive organized effort on behalf of Russia to influence that election. And that was in the old age of social media, right? And we've Mm -hmm. now done 50 rounds and this Durham probe is part of it about how much influence Russia had, whether they were coordinating with certain people like Trump. And that was 2016. You know, like who knows what this stuff looks like even just a couple months from now. Who knows what it even looks like today? I'm not sure I even fully understand what technology exists right now on this front. But taking a step back, Ricky, Durham Probe, remind our audience what this thing is all about. John Durham's report contains strong criticism of the FBI. The FBI made critical errors in handling that investigation. No probable cause, no predicate, no evidence whatsoever, and yet they used a fake dossier from the Clinton campaign to open an investigation into 
a presidential campaign. John Durham is wrong. Uh, it's not just uh, me that says that. Every other entity that's investigated our activities in 2016 agrees. Yeah, so this came out on Monday um, after four years of um, investigation by John Durham, a special counsel who was um, asked to basically investigate the investigators and look into FBI misconduct um, surrounding Crossfire Hurricane, which was the code name used for um, investigation into Trump's collusion. A supposed collusion with Russia in the election. It was launched in July of 2016. And this is a 305-page report, which is pretty comprehensive um, and had some some important revelations, some stuff that we already knew, but, you know, this is just a, a conclusive sort of report on what exactly went on behind the scenes. Um, it it demonstrated that there was no evidence of collusion with Russia, direct collusion on behalf of Trump, that there was no information that the FBI was privy to about any contact between Russia and Trump, that they had inadequate cause to launch a probe into him and his campaign, that they relied on raw, quote, raw, unanalyzed and uncorroborated intelligence, that they demonstrated a great deal of confirmation bias and um, that he concludes that they, quote, failed to uphold their important position of strict fidelity to the law by launching into this ongoing investigation that called Trump's legitimacy as president into question, that called his um, international connections into question in a pretty important way. You know, I, I really want to take this document and be like, you know what, really important document that I have full faith in. But I think the context of how this investigation even started was very political to begin with. You know, it was Bill Barr, Trump's you know, attorney general, who had been sparring with Mueller, and we don't have to do a million rounds, but was acting very political back then uh, and trying to undermine Mueller. Uh, he blessed this investigation of their own investigators at a time when the amount of smoke, like when Durham says there was like uncorroborated evidence in July, 2016, Trump said the following Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. And then Mueller later on Mueller's investigation found that he wound up charging 12 uh, uh, Russian officials with election hacking and found that the hacking seemed to start on the very day that Trump called on Russians to hack Hillary Clinton's emails. And as a, if we're tallying this up, Durham probe, he wound up charging three people. Two of them were acquitted. So he, he wound up actually having more acquittals than people who were indicted. And if you're stacking that up against Mueller, who the right loves to talk about how this was kind of like fell flat or whatever, Mueller indicted, um, he uh, wound up convicting 34 individuals, two companies, and including top uh, Trump officials. And they're, you know, for all the issues that we have here, and I mentioned the, the Senate Intelligence Committee report, which found that not only was Russia interfering in our election, but they were interfering in our election to help Trump. Now, they didn't say Trump was coordinating, which I think has well, not collusion been Collusion is a different conversation, than, though. Yeah, I think like, like when you have an FBI that has a couple pieces of information, one is that Trump is calling publicly for a foreign adversary to hack his political opponent on the very day that they start hacking it, and you have other evidence, and this, the Senate Intelligence Committee was actually run by Republicans at that time, found that Russia was also intervening throughout the election to help Trump and hurt Hillary Clinton. That's a lot of fire there. And they wound up convicting a lot of Trump officials for things like obstruction of justice and all kinds of stuff that tried to stymie that investigation. So to me, I don't completely trust Durham. I don't trust this investigation. I do think they found some certain things like the abuse of FISA warrants, which was the one conviction that they did get that was, um, or the doctoring of a document, I think it was, which is totally inappropriate. And the FBI, through their office of their inspector general, uh, has already called themselves out and issued reforms that, at least according to the FBI, would make it so that this wouldn't have happened again. Um, so I'm just not sure that this rises to the level. Never mind, Ricky, that Trump promised, though the person who blessed this, so this is Trump's Department of Justice, his handpicked attorney general, who uh, blessed this very investigation, promised, quote, that it would find the crime of the century. Like, I'm not sure that we've approached anything even near what he promised in this investigation. No, and I think that would be a demonstration of the fact that John Durham is not just churning out what Trump requests. I mean, he 
this isn't, there aren't more indictments. There, he had one guilty plea and two acquittals and the people that he already tried to charge. There aren't actionable consequences to this. Um, I think one of the important things, though, is that the FBI has since made reforms to stop something like this happening from happening again. I think it's important to to point that out and to say that in, in today's world, this probably couldn't, like history probably couldn't repeat itself. But to, to for the FBI to, to use um, like information with significant errors, omit things entirely to, to get warrants to eavesdrop on um, a campaign aid, that's very significant. To rely on something like the Steele dossier without, as basically the, the kind of impetus to launch this probe into him without any... S- demonstration that they've actually corroborated a single allegation in it, that's pretty critical too. Um, especially now that we know that the Clinton campaign had their their fingers in in that whole cookie jar and getting all this um, oppo research about Trump. I mean, I think that, you know, there's there's a conversation about what this is and what this isn't. And it's not what what Trump is is saying is going to be this bombshell, like Durham's coming and they're all tweeting that and it's going to be this explosive thing and everyone's going to be in jail. And we don't want a banana republic where that is the case anyways. But I think it's important to have a conversation about a the FBI in general who is just hemorrhaging public trust and public support and and to have a referendum on the fact that for a long time we were just using this Russia narrative to completely dismiss Trump and say, oh, he's not even a legitimate president. He wouldn't even be here at the first time. And I think that, um, again, the left took their eyes off of the prize here and really just like discussing why why did half of America vote for this person who I bet you if you asked them in 2012, would you want to vote for Donald Trump in four years? The majority of, of the people who voted for him would have been like, what? No, I don't want that. And I, and I think this was like a distraction, a meaningful distraction from a lot of his campaign and the reason that he ended up where he did. And I think perhaps most illustrative of that is this clip from Rachel Maddow's just one episode of how how much everything just turned back to Russia in every every conversation that we had basically about Trump Vladimir Putin Russia 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 hates Russia 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 Putin Russia's Russia 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 Russian 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 Russia Russia Moscow Moscow Russia Russian pro Russian Russian Russia Russian 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 the Russians Russian 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 Russians Russians Russian 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 Russia Russian 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 Moscow Russian Russian Russia Putin Russian 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 against us I know that Maddow is an extreme example but at the same time, now she's saying this is a whole nothing burger. There's nothing to see here. It's important to have a conversation about the fact that this FBI probe like captured everyone's attention for a very long time. And I think took just diverted the national conversation towards something that ended up. I mean, there's they didn't have a single piece of evidence that Trump was in communication with Russia. And yet they launched this ongoing probe and wasted American taxpayers on it. I would say, yeah, I would say that the, the evidence was Trump himself, you know, when he called on a foreign adversary to hack his political opponent. And it's not the only time he did something like that. He, you know, obviously had the whole, you know, that the whole second impeachment conversation was when he called on uh, another foreign government to go after Biden, which to me is appalling behavior. And I think like you could believe two things simultaneously. One is that Rachel Maddow is hopelessly biased and certainly oversold the evidence uh, about Russia and Trump, but also that there was significant reasons to be concerned about Russia then and now. And I'll just quote you from Marco Rubio, you know, then acting committee head in the Senate Intelligence Committee, um, you know, leading a bipartisan committee to look into the 2016 election. The volume one said, quote, an unprecedented level of activity against state election interference infrastructure was carried out by Russian intelligence 2016. The activity occurred in all 50 states was stopped by many officials and experts to have been a trial run to probe American defense and identify weakness in the vast back-end apparatus, voter registration operations, state and local election databases, electronic poll books, and other equipment of state election systems. And so this is a, a foreign adversary who's trying to interfere in our elections according to basically every wing of our intelligence community and at the same time, you have the current president who is then running for president, um, who was calling on that very adversary to hack his opponent's materials. Now, that to me is not just inappropriate, but 
is is the kind of thing that I that we should never forget. And if and if the FBI, if that's being used by the FBI to think that there may be something untoward going on with Trump, then that at least where I agree with Durham. And Durham said, hey, that's at least enough for a preliminary investigation. Absolutely. But it shouldn't have been this all, you know, it, it didn't need to necessarily go as far and as aggressively as it did. And and I want to reiterate, I do think there were things that the FBI did inappropriately here. And I do think that the reforms that have happened are warranted. I do think that the, the OIG report is very sensible on this front. But I also think that if you investigate any investigation, it's going to come up with problems. And I actually think it's good to investigate as many investigations as possible, especially political ones. You know, I've talked about this podcast before. Every time politics and criminal justice investigations um, overlap, we need to be extremely careful. And so there were a lot of things that were wrong about this investigation, but I also am not completely trusting of Durham or the very rationale in the beginning for this thing, because I think the Justice Department OIG could have handled this. Well, I've, I'll just add that, I, I mean, I'm not saying that there was, that Russia didn't have any involvement in the election. This is a specific investigation into col- direct collusion between Trump and Russia, which is a, a domestic FBI issue. The larger interference is a is an international issue and a separate one. And so I'm not using this document to disprove that Russia had anything to do with anything at all whatsoever. I think it's I the only reason I think it's important to underscore this is in in a world where half of America has serious doubts about, um, according to polling, about the FBI's integrity. That's I, I mean, I'm, I know I've, I've said before, I'm not like a big pro institution person, but I do believe that the best way to have good institutions is to hold them accountable and to ask these questions and to meaningfully engage with issues and errors that they, they make and to make those reforms and to also um, acknowledge when something like this comes out, which is unprecedented and historical. And I think that there was a lot of uh, this is a nothing burger. There's absolutely nothing in here sort of reflexive attitudes about about it because there weren't charges in it. I think, But I think it's it's in terms of accountability, in terms of transparency, in terms of saying to the American people, yes, this was there were egregious mistakes made. Yes, taxpayer dollars were wasted on on this. Um, yes, there were abuses of evidence and lack thereof in the first place, but we're going to be better or but we are investigating that and we're auditing our own our own in the in the FBI. I think that's a healthy thing for a society to grapple with these failures. And so the whole like, oh, there's not a charge. And so this doesn't matter. The end, like story closed. Not great. And also it's we keep playing into Trump's whole, like, there's a witch hunt against me and everyone's out to get me when we have stuff like this coming out. And, you know, yeah, but we the- coddle him. We coddle the former president. The same guy, we're, we're talking about the same guy who promised that this would expose the crime of the century, the same guy who called on Russia to hack his political opponent, the same guy who, when Mueller, despite all the indictments and convictions that he had, said that Mueller failed because he didn't convict Trump. So, like, you know, and this is the former president of the United States. I know we could all roll our eyes and, you know, front runner for the GOP nomination. We could all roll our eyes and say, that's just Trump being Trump. And I'm like, no, like, act like an, a responsible adult and then people won't be investigating you. You know, like, when you call on foreign political well, adversaries... we want the people who invest him to also act like responsible adults though. And I think that that's the question here. And I'm just saying, like, we just, it's just not great to play into his hand that there was a lack of evidence here. And, you know, his, one of the things that really compels a lot of Trump supporters is this sense that everyone's out to get him. And so I think, you know, this paired with um, some of the Alvin Bragg drama and stuff, like, it's just playing into to this narrative that I don't think is a healthy one. And so I think if we actually meaningfully engage with the accountability that's, that is on display here and we and we say yeah things went wrong and we need to acknowledge that and and make sure that there are reforms moving forward to make sure the same thing doesn't happen again that's the responsible response to it not oh, nothing to see here this is there's nothing here at the end bye yeah i i, I think like and i've obviously been very critical of the brag indictment and i think that that is um different in the sense that that's a democratic uh district attorney Who's going after somebody? Uh, who's a you know promises in the campaign trail? He's going to go after him on charges that have not been tested before, at a time when he previously suggested he wouldn't. In the case of Trump, it's their his own Department of Justice investigating. They didn't even charge him, investigating him for something, 
and seemed to find some things, definitely convicted a bunch of people. Uh, and even if they hadn't found as much as they found, the starting point to me was actually a very sensible one, which is we knew that Russia was trying to interfere in elections. We knew that Trump was publicly stating that he wanted them to. <laughs> and then he also had uh, certain advisors who had rather strange relationships with Russia. And I'm like, all right, starting point. Even Durham admits yeah, Dur that. No, Durham, Durham would agree with you. And I agree with you too. Absolutely. There was plenty of ground for a preliminary investigation, but this was just a referendum on pouring too much time and energy into a longer, deeper one than there was evidence to justify. All right, well, let's talk school funding, Ricky. Speaking of spending. There are a series of articles that came out over the past few weeks on school funding. And we just want to kind of keep you up to date to this because I think this is one of the most important conversations happening right now in education. And there are just so many just platitudes thrown around about this. Like you have people say, more funding helps or fund our schools. Or some people will say, you know, funding doesn't matter. And there's been some really interesting reporting just about, well, how much does funding matter? And one article that we'll start with is from Matt Barnum over at Chalkbeat, who's done a lot of interesting reporting on school funding reports. And he's kind of the guy in education reporting who studies the studies. And he has this article about this guy named Eric Hanishek, who I'd, I've been citing for many years. And Eric Hanishek is a, is a scholar who largely has been arguing that more funding doesn't improve outcomes in schools. And so he's kind of been the guy, and he's even been a court-appointed expert uh, and uh, witness for people who want to make that those kinds of arguments, and he continues to be. But Barnum basically got a hold of this meta-study that Hannah Sheck was doing. I think it's a meta-study. I sometimes misuse that word, but kind of a, a roll-up of a bunch of different studies. Meta-analysis, yeah. Meta-analysis um, that found... Uh, Actually, the opposite of what Hannah Sheck has been describing. Now, it's not; it doesn't seem to be a super robust finding, but found that actually more money in certain modest ways improves outcomes of schools. People are holding this up, Ricky, saying, "Like, look, we told you so," uh, and they're combining it with this other article from Adam Harris in the Atlantic that said that the headline of that article is "America isn't ready for the school funding crisis," and basically talks mm -hmm. about how the 120 billion dollars in American Rescue Plan dollars that had been hitting the schools are going to dry up. And Harris is saying this is going to have devastating consequences for schools. Other people who are pro-school funding advocates are saying, well, that combined with what Barnum uh, and Hanushek found basically suggests that this is going to hurt kids. Yeah. So just to flesh out his findings a little bit more, 11 out of the 18 studies that he looked at had um, positive and statistically significant results demonstrating that more funding does um, potentially increase test scores for kids. But I would say like the the conversation about it just feels overly simplistic to me when you really have to like investigate and parse out all the different ways that money is spent. Like even on the COVID-19 front, For there sure. was there were schools that that poured money into HVAC filter filtration systems and schools that poured money into extra tutoring and stuff. And so I think like even even if there is that statistically significant increase, I think it's just it's so impossible to say that all sorts of funding is better at a, like at all points in time, no matter what, or that all these different localities are not doing completely desperate things with these funds. And, you know, I think it's something like 10% of the funding that a, sc a school gets is actually coming from like a federal level. The majority of it is based on what their local legislators have decided is appropriate to allocate money for. So we're running a ton of experiments across the country, which I think is a healthy thing. I think it should be localized, but it's so difficult to just generalize and say more money is better when you look at a place like New York City here, where we're paying $38,000 per student, whereas the average private school price in this state is $20,000. Mm -hmm. So I, I, it's hard to say like, yeah, more money is just always going to be better when clearly our test scores demonstrate that that's not always the case. I think that there's yeah. a, a great case right now in the post-COVID world to figure out how to spend more money more efficiently and better to help kids get back on track. But just to say like, oh, money is money's always better, I, I think right. it's just overly simplistic. Yeah, and I think like people will accuse you if you say you want to cut certain programs or whatever that you want to defund schools or whatever. But, you know, like a simple thought experiment. If I said I was going to spend $100 million more on New York City schools, 
that doesn't tell you a whole lot. What if I spent that on like golden hand railings in schools? Like that's yeah. not going to help any kid. Whereas if I said, Hey, I'm going to spend that money on high power tutoring. Well, maybe that'll be justified. Um, and this week I wrote something in our newsletter in Brolio about how New York spent all this money on decreasing class size with very little evidence that that was going to help kids at the same time mm-hmm. that they rejected the expansion of high power tutoring. That's a problem. Uh, there's yeah. another piece though that we'll link to in the seventy uh, from the seventy four, which is Corey DeAngelis and one of his co-authors that I can't remember. They released a chapter of a book that they're writing, and Corey DeAngelis coming at this from the right, but he writes some things that I think are hard to argue with. Which he talks about how since 1970, inflation inflation adjusted costs of uh, sending a student all the way through K to 12 has almost tripled. While test it's scores crazy. near the end of high school remain largely unchanged during that equivalent period of time. So the period of time where the cost of sending a kid through the K-12 system has tripled, uh, teacher salaries have only increased 8% during that period of time. So this is and it's often said like these people who like me who are and I think Hanishek, he he'll describe himself as not against more funding, but against bad f- spending, which is kind of where yeah. I am. It's also regionally dependent. I have much different opinions about Idaho and Mississippi than I do New York, for example, and how they spend their money. But you could say that Idaho needs to spend more money and say that New York is probably spending too much. Like New York is a couple years away from spending a million dollars per classroom per year, often in buildings that were built 100 years ago. So it's not even mm-hmm. like that these are the buildings that we're buying. It's, it, often people say, well, real estate in New York is more expensive. I'm like, we own all these buildings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like you could, renovation I'm sure is expensive. I'm sure it's made more expensive by labor and all sorts of other concessions that people make. But I guess the point is, like, we're we're spending more and more and more. And D'Angelo also points out that we spend more than basically every other developed country and often have worse results. And so it does beg the question, like, like, like this whole debate is overly simplistic. I don't think we need to spend too much time on it, but just to say like, yes, this data is really important. There is certain ways you could spend money to help kids tutoring be one, being one of them, but we're often not spending it that way. Yeah. And I think one of the best ways that a local government could spend money on schools right now is by auditing them and trying to figure out what exactly they're using the money for and how to better that. Um, Like, for example, an audit in Fort Worth, Texas found that there were $2.7 million worth of tech funds that were completely misspent. Um, In Louisville, they audited their uh, public school system and they had 200 recommendations for improvement as a result in just making their spending more seamless. And they called it, quote, an unchecked bureaucracy that has become bloated and inefficient, which I think is just kind of illustrative of, you know, you just pour this money in. There's there's the bloat of the bureaucratic classes and administrators in schools. I think beyond a reasonable degree, there's no public or there, given the public funding, there's no like marketplace of who's doing it better and who, who can outcompete and who can get a better bang for the taxpayer's buck. And I think these audits are a meaningful way to at least try to figure out what can we do to make sure that the funds that we do have are going to the right places. Yeah, and to put some stats to that from DeAngelis' piece, since 2000, there's been about an 8% increase in the number of students and teachers, but a 37% increase in principals and assistant principals and an 88% increase in administrative staff. Uh, He also has one interesting anecdote here, which is in 2015, the New York State um, Boards Association reported that firing a teacher takes an average of 830 days and costs $313,000. And because of that, and because of how expensive that is, it's almost impossible to fire a teacher over the course of an entire decade. uh, New York City, which is the country's largest school district, fired only a dozen teachers due to incompetence. Now, I don't care what your profession is. If you've got that many people doing it, there's more than a dozen people who are incompetent. So not only is it costing a ton of money to do anything, um, but we are not able to hold people accountable who are responsible for the lives of our kids. And people can debate whatever they want about tenure, but if it were your third grader who was in that classroom and that person was devastatingly incompetent, in some cases people falling asleep during lessons and things like that, you'd want that person out of the classroom, right? You'd want that. Basically, short story is how you spend the money matters. No surprise there. Agreed. Hey, this is Ricky. You've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the tone. Shall we go to the voicemails? Let's do it. Hi, this is Nadine. I live near the border. 
Um, our immigration policy is an embarrassment. Uh, I, I am against illegal immigration. Uh, the journey is dangerous. Uh, people are subject to exploitation, and it's a security issue. But our legal immigration has unrealistically low quotas. It's cumbersome, expensive, and drawn out. It's, um, it, it keeps people in abusive situations, and it, it's a humanitarian crisis. We need immigrant, immigrants. We need uh, to have people coming here with all different skill levels. Um, our unemployment level is too high, which is interfering with our growth, and we don't have adequate population growth to meet future needs. But I honestly do not think either Republicans or Democrats have an interest in fixing the situation because playing this up, it all just plays to their base. Um, we need to tie our immigration numbers to our unemployment numbers to keep a steady flow of people coming in. They want to be here and we need these people. Uh, demonizing them is not the right answer. Uh, leaving them in limbo is not the right answer. With today's technology, the idea of leaving people in limbo for nine months or five years is absolutely an embarrassment. Um, and we need just some common sense uh, uh, approach to this. Un unbiased, unpartisan, look at it for what is in our nation's need. Thank you. Yeah, Ricky, she, you know, first of all, uh, thank you, Nadine, for sending in your voicemail. And, you know, and part of what we try to do here is is make this show real for people like you, especially if you're on the border and you're mm. bearing the brunt of this crisis. So shout out to you and thank you for listening. I do think it's interesting. I do think tying immigration to our unemployment rate is, is an interesting idea, one that I'm certainly warm to. I'm, I, I would want to game out the potential downsides of that, but it seems like a sensible thing to do. Yeah, I also think um, increasing work, like temporary work visas as a result as well would be super helpful. I mean, there's a ton of, especially in California, the like farmhand workers, a lot of people don't want to move here fully. They just want to make some money and go back home. And, and that's a perfect seasonal example of a job where that makes sense. And I'm sure that there are um, probably parallel examples around the country, but I completely agree with her in the front of like, we just need a better system, but it seems as though the incentives are just to scream past each other in um, in Congress and not actually try to figure out how, I mean, everyone kind of loses some some election points or some talking points if we have a, a more seamless legal immigration system, unfortunately. So that's depressing. And I think she's right. Well, hang in there, Nadine. Uh, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Like, once again, you're going to get sick of me saying this, but we don't charge you anything for this podcast. We don't, at the moment, like worry you with advertisers or interruption. The one thing you could do is go out there and give us a strong review, but also tweet about it, share it on your Facebook page, email it to your friend, and particularly anybody who has like political differences from you, because that's basically what we're trying to model here is a conversation for people who come at this stuff differently. Uh, you could send a voicemail at 321-200-0570. We'll be right back here on Tuesday. But remember, we have that special episode with Andrew Yang on Sunday. You will love it. Thank you, everybody. Talk to you soon. The Lost Debate is a part of the Branch Network. The show is produced by Mickey Ayub, research support by Ariane Misra, video editing by Julia Waldman, and editing and sound design by Dean Metherell. 